0: I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Product placement. It's a good book. Back in 1972, I wrote an article for Rolling Stone called Fanatic Life and Symbolic Death Among the Computer Bones. And what I was writing about was space war and hackers 40 years ago. I was actually referring to something that started in 1961 at MIT and uh, quickly generated this thing called space war, which was the only computer, what we would call a video game, for like 10 years. and. It clearly was leaking out of the mini computers that it was on and affecting the lives of everybody who played it. And since that time, these games have been leaking further and further (laughs) out of the machines into the real world. Uh, In this series, we had Daniel Suarez last year um, talking about his book, Demon, uh, which was a, a great thriller of exactly that theme. That was fiction. Tonight we get nonfiction, Jesse Schell.
1: Hi, wow, look at all these people. Um, hey, can we get some rhythmic clapping? Like, um... not so fast? Okay, it's good. Okay, that's good. Keep, no, keep it going, keep it going. Just not so fast. There you go. Ready? Thank you. That's not relevant at all, but I'm a very nervous speaker, and um, that helped calm me down a great deal. <laughs> so, so thank you. Thank you very much for that. Okay, so tonight um, my talk is called uh, Visions of the Game Apocalypse," and in a way it's kind of a follow-up talk. How many people saw my Dice talk on the Internet, right? Oh my gosh, it's a lot of people, which is weird, right? Because um, I'm a college professor. I'm not used to people listening to me. <laughs> Um, and then suddenly like a million views on that video. So that was, uh, that was kind of unexpected for me. Um, just for people who don't know who I am, just a quick um, background. I'm the CEO of a video game studio called Shell Games. We have about 50 people. We operate out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We have a second studio in Austin. I also teach at Carnegie Mellon University at the Entertainment Technology Center there. I formerly was with uh, Walt Disney Imagineering, uh, designing interactive theme park rides, and I continue to work with Disney quite a bit, and uh, as Stuart was saying, I wrote a book uh, called The Art of Game Design, and there's a kind of deck of creativity cards that goes with it, and I'm very excited to announce just yesterday we launched uh, a digital version of the cards on the Droid, uh, if anyone has a Droid, and we'll get it out on the iPod as soon as the Apple bureaucracy will finish chewing on it. Anyway, so this other talk I gave uh, back in February of, in short, I'm going to kind of give you the shortened version of it. It was all about the fact that the, there's this huge driver and a cultural force right now of authenticity that people want things that are more real and more connected with reality. And this has really kind of gone into the game space quite a bit. Real life and games have been kind of reaching out to each other, and connecting in ways that we previously um, hadn't, hadn't seen. And we've seen all kinds of examples of it in games. We have all these Facebook games, which are all about uh, your, your real life, playing with friends in real life. Um, we have uh, the Wii and the Wii Fit, which are all about using your, your body, you know. And uh, guitar here, using real music from the real world, making kind of real motions with a guitar and and uh, and video games involving real stuffed animals, Every, the game's kind of leaning towards reality. At the same time, reality sort of is reaching, re, kind of reaching back with all these different ways people are giving you points and things um, out in the world. And so I kind of, in this talk, I kind of cast forward and said, well, where is this going? Where, you know, what, would the, what could the future possibly look like? And I described something that I refer to as the game apocalypse. And the idea of the game apocalypse is that is when Every second of your life, you're actually playing a game, in some way, and so uh, I'm going I'm to repeat kind of the, the the final part of that talk because it, it gives some some sense of it. So if if you can imagine where this where this all might be going, imagine that sometime um, in the near future, that you wake up in the morning and you go to brush your teeth. And your toothbrush, you know, has inexpensive sensors on it and it's you know Wi Fi connected because it's really cheap to do that. And so, you know, you go to brush your teeth and it's like, you know, good job, here's some points, you know, for brushing brushing your teeth, right? And you and of course once you brush your teeth a full three minutes you know, more bonus points because that's the appropriate amount of time to brush your teeth. And hey, you've brushed your teeth every day this week, twice a day, more bonus points for you. And you can use these bonus points um, on discounts on toothpaste and things you're going to buy anyway at the grocery store. And it sounds stupid. Who would do this? Why? Well, the toothbrush people th- know the more you brush your teeth, the faster you use the toothpaste, the faster you use toothbrushes, the more of them you're going to buy. They're going to want to incentivize you to do it. And so then you go to breakfast, and you know there's the cornflakes. In the old days, you used to read the back of the box, but not anymore. Now you know, there's a screen on the back of the box, and uh, it, again, it's Wi-Fi connected and everything. and It's got a tilt sensor, because everybody likes tilt sensors, so it can tell when you tip the box. So here's 10 points for eating cornflakes. And then you're playing the cornflakes game on the back, you know, while you eat and you get points doing that. And then you can see a list, and it's connected to Facebook, of course, and you can see all your friends who are also, uh, you know, eating cornflakes and playing the cornflakes game. And you just, hey, you just got a score higher than all your friends. And okay, bonus points, because uh, you're doing best uh, at that. Uh, and then you go to work and you're going to get on the bus and you're like, the bus? Why would I take the bus? Well, you take the bus because the government gives out, uh, you know, gives out bonus points, you know, for, for people who take public transit. So, you know, hey, good job. And you're sitting there on the bus and you're you know, so you take out your little phone and you were going to play Tetris, but instead you end up playing Coke-Tris because it's free. Right? We went from you know, you know, $5.99 apps to $0.99 apps, and now all the apps are sponsored, so they're all free, and so you're playing Coke Trist, and that reminds you, oh, you know, I had this dream last night. I had a dream that my mother was dancing with a giant Pepsi can, right? That's kind of weird, and then you realize, oh, duh, I'm using the REM Entertainment system, and the REM entertainment system you put in your ear before you go to sleep at night. It can sense when you've entered REM sleep, and it starts whispering little messages, in your ear, attempting to influence your dreams with product placement messages. And then you take tests in the morning, and if you can guess what, what product was, in your, you know, was put in your dreams, that means it's working, and so they give you all kinds of points. And, of course, the more you do it, the more successful it works because we train our dreams. So you get big points because you remembered that it was a Pepsi ad in your dreams last night. So then you get to work on time. Good job. Good job. Good job. Uh, And in fact, you've been on time every you know every day this week. So you know, excellent job, you. And you you go to your your cube, and then hey, here's your 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 office mate, and he's like, check it out, check it out. I got this new I got this new tattoo using e-ink. You know, I got one of the e-ink tattoos, and it you know lets me change the tattoo to whatever I want. And of course, right now he's got it hooked up to Tatoogle AdSense, right? (laughs) And so that he gets, you know, he gets uh, points and he gets money for, like, putting ads on there. And and you're telling him, that's really dumb, because everyone knows Tattoo AdSense has light sensors built in. And if you have your sleeve covering it up, you're not going to get any points for that. And you show him yours, which is lower on the arm, so it gets more light. And just then, you realize your tattoos are matching right now. And so you say, LinkSync, you know, and that's points. And then he says... He says, Pop-Tarts, because they're ads for Pop-Tarts, right? And you get points for that. Um, And then you do high five, and then the body electricity sensors can sense that we did a high five, and boom, we we both get points for that. We both think that's pretty great that we noticed the link sync, and you're like, what is that stupid thing? But that's what's going to happen, is we're going to have these games designed to make you notice advertisements, right? They'll be fun, but they make you notice ads. And it's going to be very important. And so it's time to go to lunch. Now, all week, you've been having Dr. Pepper's, right? And so that was 10 points, 10 points, 10 points, 10 points for Dr. Pepper's. But you know there's a special with Dr. Pepper's this week. If you have a fifth Dr. Pepper, you know, you get, boom, big bonus points. And so, of course, you're going to have one at lunch. But then after lunch, you go into a meeting. And the meeting's in another building. And, of course, you took the bus today. Um, you could take a shuttle over. But you say, you know what, I'm going to walk because, um, you know, I've got digital shoes and Uh, my health insurance provider uh, gives me discounts on my health insurance if I walk more than a mile a day. And so, of course, you're going to do that. And if you get your heart rate above a certain level, bonus points for that. So you do brisk walking over to your other meeting. And then at the time you're going home, you're going to do some shopping. This is going to be a points festival. Oh, my God. It's so complicated. You can't figure it out. So you go to your app and you're like, hey, app, these are the things I want. And it's like, okay, here are the ones you should buy. And, of course, it knows just where they are in the grocery store. And so, boom, you get, like, a whole bunch of points for the shopping that your app told you to do. So you go home, and your daughter's like, hey, hey, guess what? I got my report card. And you're like, whoa, look at those grades. They're really good. And uh, so, like, you're going to get all these points, you know, from the, from the state for getting good grades, you know, and that's going to apply towards your scholarship, and as a parent, I'm going to get the uh, Barack Obama good parenting bonus, right, Uh, which I can apply for tax relief, which is really useful, and you're like, wait a second, did you practice your piano today? And she says, well, yeah, I practiced my piano, you know, well, what score did you get? She said, oh, well, you know, I got, I got 85,000. You're like, 85,000? That's the best you've ever done on that sonata. That's a new high score for you. So, boom, points for you from the Arts Council that apply uh, towards a scholarship for you. So that's very nice. Okay, so that's done. Uh, it's time to, at the end of the day, we're going to watch some TV. And TV, man, that is just a crazy, crazy points festival, points and points and points and points, because there's a camera on the TV now that came in once you got that Microsoft connect thing, you mounted a camera on top of the TV and it's watching you all the time. And people realize you can use this for all kinds of things. We can use it for eye tracking and to tell when you're actually looking at the ads. And so there's all these games about, like, watching the ads, follow the red ball, you know, follow the logo, right? And so it used to be people were skipping the ads, but those days are past. Now everybody wants to watch the ads because it's points, points, points. And, of course, your remote has a screen on it, you know, and, of course, it's Facebook connected. So you can chat with your friends who are playing the same games, and you can see which friends are watching which shows and have a conversation. And you play games together and and points and points and points and points and points. You know, so that's, TV is going to be a very natural place to be full of points. And then finally, okay, fine, I'm going to time to go to bed. You get your new, you know, you got your Kindle 4.0 or whatever it is. And the the cool thing about the Kindle 4.0 is it has, just like your TV, it has an eye tracker on it. Um, Which is nice because it can, uh, when you get stuck on like, what is this weird word? What does this mean? It can sense automatically that you're having trouble reading the word. It pops up a definition. That's really nice. But also, they can tell what you've read. And Amazon wants to know that because if you're going to review a book, you're going to get a heck of a lot more points if you've read every word of the book as opposed to if you just gave it a skim. And they'll know because they want that information. And you finish reading your book and... Uh, and what do you know? Achievement Unlocked. Did I, did I mention Microsoft bought Amazon? I mean, that's probably going to happen anyway. So, um, <laughs> Achievement Unlocked, you've read 500 novels. This system's been tracking you for like 20 years. You've unlocked 500 novels, and you're like, yes, 500 novels! That's an awesome achievement. But then you start to feel a little stupid. You start to realize, man, my 500th novel is this dumb Star Trek novel. And like, it's bad enough that I know that, but like, that's memorialized. Because once we have all these sensors and everything on us, watching us all the time, everything that we do all the time, and we're going to remember it. Just like remember, we used, you remember when you used to delete email and now we keep it all, right? We're going to keep all this data. You don't know day to day what your grandparents read, what books did they read, where they go every day, but your grandchildren, they're going to know. They're going to know everything you read, everything you did every day, every place you went, because all the sensors are there and recording it. And you start thinking, maybe I better step up my reading a little. (laughs) You know, because, man, this is going to be my legacy. And so it may be that, like, this future with all these disposable sensors, maybe this is a gross commercialization mess, you know, that you don't want any part of. But on the other hand, maybe it'll urge us to kind of be better than we were anyway so that was the kind of ending of that dice talk that i gave that um got people thinking quite a bit and a lot of people people had different reactions to this some people were excited they thought this was really cool other people thought no this is not cool um this is orwellian and I would have to say, well, no, it's not, really. Technically, it's Huxleyan. Because, um, you, know, you know, 1984 was all about uh, the government using technology to control people. That's not what this is. This is more like Brave New World, um, where technology controls us because it is so pleasurable. Um, and that's, that's a bit of a different situation. But still, I understand that people think it's creepy. Um, other people said... Wait, this is happening now, right? I talked about this toothbrush thing, and immediately after the talk, someone's like, I have an Oral-B toothbrush that already does this. You, like, it's, <laughs> it, it times you. It's got a three-minute thing, and then it's a sad face if you don't finish your three minutes. <laughs> and you hit your three minutes, and bing, happy face. And I'm like, is it Wi-Fi? They're like, no, no, It's not. But I have a Wi-Fi scale, the guy says. So there's a scale out there that's Wi-Fi. Every time you weigh yourself, boom, to a database. So you have a perpetual graph of your weight effortlessly. You can even configure it to tweet your weight. <laughs> if you would want that. I don't know who would want that. Um, but I figure it's a, it'll be about five minutes before we get a Wi-Fi toothbrush. That'll be coming very soon. And what else? Then, and, and then all these other things started coming out, I saw. You've got the, uh, the, the shift to health replay watch it's a regular watch more or less it's kind of funky looking but it's got motion sensor and when it can, when it senses after it senses an hour of motion from like running or exercising or something it spits out a code and you type in the codes online and you get like coupons for Starbucks or uh or Barnes and Noble or things like that um you got things like Green Goose which uh tracks you know how much you ride your bike And they're working on doing things that's like, well, how much are you drinking water as opposed to drinking soda? And you put a tilt sensor on the bottle and it automatically uh, uploads that to the internet. And they have all kinds of things like that. Um, Tropicana, Juicy Rewards. I don't know if people have seen this. Codes on your orange juice. And you type them in online and you you get uh, get points and prizes for drinking orange juice. Um, Mind Bloom is a real interesting one. It's meant to be kind of, it's like a, a virtual plant that represents your good habits. So you tell it, oh, I'd like to take vitamins every day, and, oh, and I think I should exercise. And then like you, you, you spend money, a little virtual money, to kind of make these commitments. And then when you meet the commitments, you get paid back. And your little tree, it like grows. My tree's all sad and dead, but um, <laughs> anyway. Um, and then there's Epic Win. If you want to check out EpicWinApp.com, or just get, check out the Epic Win app on, uh, I think it's on the, on the iPhone. I think it's coming to the droid. Um, it uh, basically takes your to-do list and turns it into a role-playing game, and so you get experience points and level, you know, and you level up every time you complete these things, and it turns it into this big adventure. Um, and there's so many. Uh, NBC started this Fan It thing. It's like, hey, uh, you like our shows? Well, earn points. So you watch a trailer for a show, we'll give you points for that. You tweet about a show, and they'll give you points for that, and you can use these points to cash them in and buy T-shirts for. NBC. It's great. Advertise to yourself, and we'll give you free advertisements so you can advertise to other people. Um, and uh, and then, freaking Honey Nut Cheerios came up with an augmented reality application. You hold the box up in front of the in front of your webcam, and you use it to like steer through this like virtual environment. So cereal boxes are like part of the Game Apocalypse ahead of schedule. Um, <laughs> I didn't did not expect that. See that coming. So one question is, what the hell? Right? I mean So we ha- here we have games are creeping into reality, reality is creeping into games and all of life starts to become a game. One question would be why? Why would this happen? Why in the world would this happen? Well, the fundamental reason is games are awesome. Right? Games are really cool. They're fun, and they're interesting, and we love games, right? So we want things to be awesome, so of course, games are going to come through and creep into things. But let's be more specific about this. People talk about, oh, things are becoming game-like. Let's break down some of the things we like about games. There's a lot to like in games. Games have a lot of cool stuff. Some of the things games provide, they provide clear feedback. When you're at work, it's like, how am I doing at work? You know, it's hard to know You know, what does my boss think? And you get these vague senses. In a game, it's like, did you beat level 3? No, I totally beat level 3. It's not ambiguous, right? Boss monster is dead, right? (laughs) And now I'm on level 4. No, I got a badge. Look, I mean, it's it's very, very clear, the feedback you get. You get this sense of progress about getting better and better and better. And, And it's very clear, and you love it. We love those little progress bars. We love them. It's really hard not to fill in that progress bar, even though you don't want to. You know, no, Farmville, I don't want to post, oh, I'll get 100% on my progress bar. Yes, (laughs) yes, I finished the progress bar. Okay. (laughs) Games give you the possibility of success. We attempt a lot of things in life. Is it going to work? Is it even possible? I don't know, you know. But in games, if there's a game, yeah, it can be won. Yeah, almost always, right? You know that. Um, games give you mental exercise. They give you physical exercise. We like that. Those are important part of games. Games let you satisfy your curiosity. That's a big part of games. It's one of the things that you you come in. You're like, hmm, how can I solve this? How am I going to do it? And and you get to do that, which is which is pleasing. And you get a chance to solve a problem. And we like solving problems. We find it very rewarding, particularly when they're problems that we know. Are potentially solvable, not just weird head-cracking problems. And they're problems that when they're solved, it's very clear that you have solved the problem, and it is 100% and fully solved. We like that a lot. (laughs) And games give you a feeling of freedom, and this is maybe one of the most defining things about games. That's how they're not work. Work you have to do, right? If there's a game and I make you play it, it's not fun anymore. It doesn't feel like a game. It's a game that you enter into games willfully. You do it because you want to. And people who are uh, like, and, and this has been very thought-provoking for me because so much of what we're getting into is, is about this. And there's an excellent book, um, it's, it's actually a book from the 80s, Finite and Infinite Games, and it's actually a philosophy book. The subtitle is A Vision of Life as Play and Possibility. And it talks about how there are two ways to approach everything. One is as a finite game, a thing that can be won or lost, and another is as an infinite game, a thing that you enter into with a sense of curiosity and a sense of playfulness. And this is a very interesting philosophical uh, approach. Um, partly I find it fascinating because it, it, it presumes that all of life is just a series of games. And then secondly, um, it, it, it goes right toe-to-toe with this sense of what exactly is freedom and how does it relate to us? Anyway, you might want to check that out. So, uh, one of the things that you have to do if you're going to think about this seriously, I mean, you're trying to predict the future. And a lot of people are, have given up on predicting the future. Um, and uh, the, this audience is certainly very familiar with the concept of the singularity. And I often find that people mean very different things. When they talk about the singularity some people talk about it as some artificial intelligence moment or some computing moment i don't think that's what's important the nature of the singularity the singularity in my mind is very much the moment when technology's advanced so far that we are unable to predict what the world will be like five seconds from now right a thousand years ago you could make a pretty good prediction about what things would be like one year later or five years later, or even 10 or 20 years later. For us to predict 20 years in the future now, whoa, that seems really hard. Even two years. And the, the number is creeping in, and eventually the idea of the singularity is that it'll be five seconds, and you won't even be able to guess what, what's going on. And with this happening, <laughs> right, because this, this, this threshold, the prediction threshold is creeping in, it's made a lot of people give up on prediction they've become future blind. They're like, I can't even think about it. Something's going to happen. I don't know. I'll put my money here, duh, (laughs) right? And that's that's ridiculous because if you put some energy into it, you can make some predictions um, about the future, right? you can look into your crystal ball and you can figure it out but it takes practice and the ironic part is if you practice it the singularity is actually helping you because for you to predict okay what's going to be up with mobile applications two years in the future and to really put your mind on it and focus well guess what in two years you're going to have some good feedback about right or wrong and then you can use that and say oh i did a bad job predicting that time maybe i'll do better if you practice predicting, you will get better, and you're going to get feedback fast. But if you're future blind and you don't bother, you're going to continue to suck at predicting the future. <laughs> so with that in mind, I, here are some of my attempts to kind of predict some of the things that are coming down the road as we move towards the game apocalypse. Some of them will be right, some of them will be wrong, but hopefully they'll be meaningfully thought-provoking. So there's us. And there's the game apocalypse, up there, and we're going to get there. Do we want to get there? Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but it's coming, so we might as well figure it out. Um, is it a straight line? No, it's kind of a windy path to get there. Um, and there's a lot of things on the way. Um, there's different things on the way. So some of the things we're going to see, we're going to see a lot of different uh, sort of cultural forces that are at work we 're going to see a heck of a lot of technologies on the way that are going to make a difference for us, and we 're going to see some implications towards the nature of design that come out of all this. So when you add it all up, oh my god there 's a lot of stuff on this windy path, and that 's fine. We can deal with a lot of stuff. so here we go um, we 'll go on our path and we 'll start with the idea of nooks and crannies, and this has become very important for games so as, we, as games are creeping everywhere, people always say, oh, what's where are games going? I'm like, they're going everywhere. And there are a lot of forces at work doing this. Some of them are technological, some, some of them are, technological, some are cultural, some of them are financial, but there's pressures for games to go everywhere. So if you're going to make games, you need to look in the places they haven't gone yet. And so there are all these weird nooks and crannies that we can look in to figure out where games are going to go. One of them is who's playing games used to be it's like okay yeah males 15 to 25 that's our target demographic one of the things that's happened recently is no everyone is playing games male female young old there are games for everybody but what nooks and crannies can you go into that you haven't gone into yet have you figured out how to make a game for fishermen have you figured out Um, how to make a game for pogo stick enthusiasts. I mean, there's all these nooks and crannies of the human race that you can go to. Some of them are geographical, right? There's a lot of games for Americans. Games in Asia are a little different. Um, Not too many people are making games for Africa because they don't have so much money there. But, like, who's making games for the Middle East? Because I'll tell you what, those guys have a lot of freaking money, (laughs) right? Right? i bet they'd love it if someone would make them some great games but it's not happening but someone's gonna right so there's nooks and crannies that way but one of the most important nooks and crannies is when you look at how you spend your day this is going to be the battlefield of the 21st century as the world tries to compete for your attention in everything that you do right um already you know leisure time that's well understood in terms of where games are but the big explosion of facebook gaming that's because you can play Facebook games at work, and no one will know, right? <laughs> Suddenly, boom, there's this huge chunk of time you can like, spend playing games that you weren't before. Look at the size of that compared to socializing, right? And then there's all these other things. Can I have games that are part of TV? Oh my god, that's going to be huge for games. Household activities. Can The Swiffer is almost a game. Can I get points for doing the Swiffer, right? <laughs> Uh, grooming. You know, I talked about toothbrushes. Can can like, doing my hair be that? Um, REM sleep. We talked about that. And well, anyway. So this is like uh, one way to think about carving things up. Um, oh, can I have a game? You know, I already play games with my dog where I like throw him a stick and he brings it back. Can there be points and stuff? Is there a digital version? You get a million points because you're so cute. <laughs> okay, moving on. All right, so. This nook and cranny principle. We're going to see this coming up a lot. And one thing related to this is the idea of microtransactions. It used to be with games, you plunk down your money, you get a big fat game, and that was how it worked. Now we have the ability to spend 50 cents here or a dollar there, and it's changed the way games work. Because you can start playing for free, and then in the game when you want something, because we want things in the middle of a game, they can say, ah, that, that thing's 50 cents, right? And that changes what we can do. It lets us put games in places they weren't before. And people sometimes ask, well, wait a minute. Do people really want these microtransactions? I'm not sure I really believe in this. And I'm like, are you a freaking idiot? Have you seen the App Store? People are happy to spend 99 cents on some dumb thing, right? You know, in, in huge millions and millions of dollars. And we've seen this have a huge impact on the game industry. Look at this chart of handheld revenue. Right, 2008, it was Nintendo DS was a clear winner, PSP was doing okay, iPhone, eh, we got a little bit of game software. Oh, by 2009, PSP is like falling in half, iPhone is taking this huge chunk, right, and Nintendo's still hanging in there, but I think they're like, hey, wait a minute, how can we get some of that action? Um, And now what about like on the game consoles? Why don't we see this on the game consoles? And the reason is, these guys are freaking scared to death of microtransactions. They're like, no, no, no. We want our 50 bucks. We, you spend 50 bucks on a game. You don't spend a quarter. I don't want that. None of them wants to be the one that really opens the door for like free games and suddenly games got really cheap. But somebody's going to do it. I bet it's going to be some fourth console that comes in and does that. And these guys are all going to feel like they have to catch up. We'll find out. And here's one other thing. If you take social networking and you combine that with microtransactions, oh my God, that's like peanut butter and chocolate, <laughs> right? Because you're playing for free and you and your friends are hanging out, and then suddenly social pressure to spend 50 cents. Oh, all right, all right. But social pressure is so much stronger than other kinds of pressure, and, uh, and it works really, really well with microtransactions, so uh, yeah. Now, an interesting thing to note, the companies that are succeeding with microtransactions, these are not the companies that succeeded traditionally in the game space. None of the big game companies are really succeeding here. It's always it's these new guys, Zynga and Playfish and Playdom. Did you hear Disney bought Playdom for $500 million today? It's crazy. And then you got Big Point in Europe. Oh, my goodness. And I, uh, this was an example I'd cited before. This really shook up the game industry, a little formula, EA minus 1,500 full-time staff uh, plus Playfish, minus $300 million, which is what they bought for, equals, you know, what in the world <laughs> is going on? Clearly, the game industry is changing and turning upside down. These two things happen in the same day. You 1,500 people, you're laid off. Okay, Playfish, come on in. Here's your $300 million. Everyone's like, wait, what? <laughs> we- Even if you divide that, it doesn't... Anyway, all right, moving on. Now, this all relates to, I know many people are familiar with this book in this audience, uh, the Clay, Clay Christensen's The Innovator's Dilemma. Oh, it's such, uh, it, it it's so much describes the situation. This book is all about why big companies never see it coming, right? How, which is crazy. You think big companies, they're smart. That's how they got big. Of course, they're going to see the future coming. No, they don't. Little guys grow up. And the reason is this difficult to comprehend graph. Um, so... This graph is like product performance, how awesome your product is, right? And this is over time. Oh, let me get the good laser. This laser stinks. La 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 la. Oh, look, my laser got better over time. La la la. OK, good. All right, so uh, so here, you go. all products, they get better over time. We know that. They're going to get better because you're going to keep advancing. Well, uh, that's, that's fine. That's great. Here's a product getting better slowly, and here's one getting better fast. Well, they point out these important lines. And these are two important lines. This one at the top is all about, yeah, I don't need anything better than this. There's a certain amount of gigahertz where you're like, no, seriously, my web surfing is fine. You know, (laughs) 100 million gigahertz. It's not, no, I just, seriously, I'm just watching videos and stuff, man. I don't, no, I'll I'll just keep my old one. Right? And and there's that line. And then the other line um, is this important one down here. This is the line. If it's below this, you're like, no, that thing's garbage. I can't use it. But then the second it's above it, you're like, oh, yeah, that's good enough. That's fine. I can use that. And what happens to the big companies, they get something that's up here. People like it. They're using it. And they say, customers, what should we do? And the customers are like, make it better. Okay, all right, we make it better. What about it now? Make it better. All right, we'll make it better. Hey, hey, customers, I'm going to take a pause at this moment and ask you what you think of this Alternate technology. And they say, boo, socks, not good enough for me. Take yours and make it better. All right, I'm making it better. What do you think of it now? They're like, um, I don't really need it to be this good. Um, and you'll have to excuse me because I need to go buy this. Because it's like way cheaper and it does everything I need. And I'm like, I just asked you about that. And they're like, yeah, but that was before it was quite good enough, right? And this is what happens every, every, every time. And if you're predicting the future, this is a very useful tool for you. All right, moving on. (laughs) La, 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 la. Next step, new sensors. Oh, my gosh. This is how games are going to get everywhere because we're going to sense things. Because games have to sense things because otherwise, how do they know what's going on? And every time some new sensor shows up, there's a new way to make a game about it. Right? And there's so many kinds of sensors coming. It was so exciting with the, you know, when people got the iPhone. Ooh, it's tilty. And a million games came out all about tilting. And suddenly tilting was fun. Ooh, I can touch it, and that's fun. And every time a new sensor shows up, you can, you can do something. Um, and so, like we've seen, you know, the Wii Fit. And it's like, wow, you can do these kind of exercise things. And that's cool, right? And, and, of course, we had the Wii was a big re- revolution. And now we're going to have the Microsoft Kinect which has a camera up there you can use your whole body right as a controller and that's coming out this christmas and that's cool and then you've got the playstation move which is a similar sort of thing where you can sense motion except it's more detailed so everybody's doing these things that are all about this full sensing and we're still figuring out how you're going to use it but we've got those but But it's a good thing to pause and think for a second, because everyone just assumes, oh, I'll be able to move my whole body, and therefore that's more realistic, and so it's better. And that's why it's better, right? Because you're moving your whole body, it's more realistic. And if you ask Nintendo, they say, no, 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 that's not why. Nintendo talks about the problem of too many buttons. Nintendo's goal in creating the Wii mote was not because motion was cool. Nintendo was said their problem was they looked at it was not enough people are playing games. And they went to people who didn't play games, and they said, you used to play games. You know, how come you stopped? And people would say, oh, well, the controller, it used to be simple. It had a couple buttons. Then they got all complicated. They got all these buttons. It's way too many buttons. I can't deal with so many buttons, they would say. And Nintendo said, okay, well, maybe that is the problem, too many buttons. But they thought about it, and they said, wait a minute. You say it's too many buttons, but you've got one of these. It's got way more buttons, and in fact, I've been to your house. You've got three of them on the couch. That's a lot of freaking buttons. That's way more buttons than we've got on this thing. And they realized, oh, it's not the number of buttons. It's a, something Nintendo calls um, simultaneous ambidextrous control. In other words, having to use both hands at once to do different things is what the, the, these modern controllers demand of the player. And that is cognitively difficult for people. And it's not a function of number of buttons. Um, and you notice these remotes, none of them they demand you to use two hands at once for two different things. They don't ask that. And so Nintendo said, well, if we made a game controller that was one-handed, how could we do it? Because you need to do a lot of things. And they said, oh, what if we used... We've been fooling around with motion control. What if we used motion control so we didn't need so many buttons? And that was why they made the, the Wiimote. Because that's, that's how it feels to, um, to a player um, who's not used to it. Right? And so they made the Wiimote, which is, ah... It's just so simple, right? It even has fewer buttons in there and and so yeah, that's <laughs> very nice. Anyway, um so Sensors are going everywhere, and they're going to get. We're going to be able to sense all kinds of things. You've got Nike Plus has sensors in your shoes. Um, we're going you know, to be able to sense temperature. We've got Foursquare sensing where you are out in the world. Sensors, 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 sensors. We're going to see more of them, and they're going to be cheap, and they're going to be disposable, and they're going to be on everything, and that's going to let us play all kinds of games. Someone after the talk said, "Oh yeah, I wanted to tell you about. I work for this company, and we make pills that have sensors." in them. They're, they're powered by your gastric juices, and it can sense, like, temperature in your body, and it sends out, like, a little radio signal, to a little Band-Aid that you've put on, and the Band-Aid receives, like, a temperature information over time in your body, and I'm, and I'm like, why are you talking to me? Why, why are you telling me? Well, we're thinking of making a game out of it. I'm, like, oh, great. That sounds like a great game. Um, <laughs> And some people say, oh, they joke about implants and like, well, we might get implants one day, but implants are a pain. So if implants are coming, meaningful implants, I think they're going to start in the tooth um, because teeth are cool. They're like bones outside your skin. Anyway, that's just a note about teeth and implants. All right, moving on. Um, So there's a lot of new sensors, but you got to have more than sensors. You need screens, right? We're going to have all these new screens. That are going to show up we 're already seeing screens show up in our lives first we saw, "Hey, screens in your pockets and now everyone carries a little screen around. They all have a screen all the time, and people are like good i don 't need any more screens, but no, of course not you 're going to have more and more and more screens because screens are getting cheaper, and we like because technology always diverges, and so we 're going to have more and more screens um, uh, Siftables Siftio are you in the audience where 's siftio? Woo, Siftio. Alright, so Siftio, these guys are like making these little cubes that have screens on them that can sense the presence of each other. And so you can do interactive games and activities um, on the tabletop. Like, it's kind of like a cross between board game and video game and app and it, it's, it's a new way of kind of interacting. And it all has to do with having multiple screens that you can move around and place relative to each other. And so, we're going to have this kind of coffee table board game space is going to start to have a lot of screens in it. Um, uh, And now, I'd made a joke back in February, and it was real funny in February, right after the the iPad came out, I was talking about technologies and how they, they diverge. And and I was saying how the, the iPhone, like, technologies always diverge, but the iPhone's weird because it has a convergence of technologies, kind of like a Swiss Army knife does, and that this is only possible because the only place technologies don't diverge is in your pocket. It's the pocket exception to the law of divergence. And that's, so, yeah, sure, a Swiss Army knife, right, it makes total sense in your pocket, but if I gave you one for your kitchen, <laughs> you'd say, that's really stupid. Because, like, it can only do one thing at a time, and it's difficult to clean, and you say, this is awkward and ridiculous, and, and that's why everyone hates the iPad, <laughs> right? Now, at the time, that got a roaring laugh back in February, but then a couple months later, I told the same joke, and people were like, but no, I kind of like the iPad, and then, <laughs> so iPad's actually kind of cool. And the reason for this is for the hype curve, from the Gartner group, for people who know about this. All technologies follow this same curve. They start with a basic technology trigger at the bottom and like you're, this cool thing just got invented. Now this is a graph of visibility over time. Right? And so this thing got invented and then everybody starts talking about it. No one has seen it yet. All right? Everyone's talking about, oh, it's so awesome, you know, they're talking about it, it's so, so amazing, I can't wait, it's gonna change my life. Right? And they're waiting outside the store in order to buy the thing. And this is a point called the peak of inflated expectations. And then the thing comes out, and everyone sees for what it really is. And they all say, boo, we hate it. And we go deep into the trough of disillusionment. And boo, this thing's horrible, and we hate it, and it sucks. Um, but then eventually, uh, people figure out, oh, I see what this is for. And then over time, they figure out, okay, it doesn't change everything, but it's good for some things, and that's really nice. And so at the time, like I told that joke, it was like right here, right? People were like, oh man, I thought the iPad was going to change everything. But then later, people were like, oh, actually, it's, it's, I can do web surfing on the couch. It's kind of, it's kind of nice. I kind of figured it out. <laughs> um, and, and Saturday Night Live, they had it right. Uh, when the iPad came out, they made a great joke about it. They said it was Hey, the iPad came out this weekend. 300,000 people bought it, uh, $500 uh, they each paid for, for this, which brings in a new era of people buying things to find out what they are. Right? Which is totally true. Because you see people with the iPad, and they're like, should I bring it to work? I guess, maybe? I don't know, what's it for? Right? And, and they, they gradually, gradually figured it out. And it turns out what the iPad's freaking awesome for... It's like computing on the couch. Computing on the couch always sucked before. Trying to do your laptop kind of sucked. Or you use the phone, but it's so small. It's actually really nice. For the couch, it's great. It fills a little nook and cranny in my life that I didn't know I needed, right? It's like, oh, this is pretty great. I don't know if I want to carry it everywhere all the time. I feel weird at a meeting typing on that thing. But, but on the couch, I mean, that's pretty great. So what have we learned from this? Um, put jokes here. Um, <laughs> We've we, we learned that. Certainly. But I think the deeper thing is that to figure out the nooks and crannies that the plateau of productivity is all about, uh, we have to figure out where these, where these go. OK. Um, oh, oh, And I love this. This was announced like two days ago. company in India has announced they're going to make uh, a tablet uh, computer 35 bucks. It's coming out in 2012, I think they've announced, 35 bucks. And my favorite part about it is this picture of the guy. (laughs) Hey, check it out, 35 bucks. You could buy an iPad or you could buy 15 of these. And anyway, it seems sort of silly, but it certainly points to the fact that screens are going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And you're going to be able to put them in all kinds of weird places that you didn't think of before. Oh, and there's a side note on this. The person who figures out how to combine uh, digital pornography uh, with a waterproof shampoo bottle (laughs) is going to be very rich. (laughs) That person will make a lot of money. (laughs) Remember this day, for I dub it, (laughs) champorn. All right. Okay, all right, moving on. Let's move out of that. (laughs) Definitely. All right, so let's move to the next stop, the next horrifying stop. There are fantasy experiences we have that don't involve screens at all. And uh, so, for example, our dreams, it's really interesting to think about dreams because dreams are like, I mean, you can't get any more immersive than that. I like to think about, who, who writes those? They're good. I'd like to meet that guy, because it's awesome. Some of those things are exciting and terrifying and, and you know, perplexing, I think. All, like, what, what, was, what did he mean by that? I don't know. Um, which gets to the question of, can we control them? And, of course, there are people who have worked hard at, like, you know, there's the idea of lucid dreams, dreams where you have sort of freedom to control them. People have tried to make devices, that are all about letting you know. They sense when you've entered REM sleep, and then they send a signal to you, either by flashing lights in your eyes or putting sound in your ear, like, hey, hey, dummy, you're having a dream. Uh, You should probably wake up, but not actually wake up, but like be aware of it and figure that out. Um, Maybe I'm crazy, but I think this is a whole untapped area that I think somebody is going to find a way in to kind of Manage our dream life so that we like it more. Anyway, um, because, you know, dream, dreams, are, dreams are awesome. All right. Uh, moving on. Unfortunately, the people who are probably going to do it are the advertising uh, people because they have the most reason to do it. And let's talk a little bit about the advertising people. They're having a tough time, right? The print media is taking a beating. And that's where they got a lot of their money. And TV, who watches ads on TV? Everybody TiVos and skips it. And it could be that that whole TV ad thing collapses. Ads on the Internet are mostly a joke. And I think we know that. So the ad people are like, ah, what's going on? So games is one place they're like, ah, digging their fingernails in, trying to figure it out. And initially they tried a lot of sort of naive approaches. Um, <laughs> That, that, that don't make a lot of sense. There's a lot of times you can't just take any ad and inject it into any game. I, that just doesn't really work very well. Um, so then they tried making games based around products, right? Here's a whole bunch of them. You go online and play the Sweet Tarts game. Or, for some reason, these are always about sugar. I don't know why that is, but that does seem to be the case. So they've done these, and these are okay. I mean, you know, there's some of that, but it kind of only goes, it only goes um, so far. Uh, so these guys are trying new things. So 7-Eleven cut a deal with Zynga so that if uh, you play Farmville and you go to Zynga and you buy a Slurpee, there's like a code on the cup, and you get like farm cash in Farmville for every Slurpee you buy. And I think this is just the beginning, because these virtual economies in these games are powerful. We want to make more of our virtual money. We want more World of Warcraft gold. and We want more farm cash. And the, and the, the advertisers are waking up and like, oh, we can, we can give you that. That's easy. That's just like a little data thing. And boop, we gave you imaginary money. We'll give you that if you'll pay attention to our product. Sure. Um, and those advertising people, man, they're sneaky. You've got to keep an eye on them because, man, they get in there and they figure it out. So here's a graph of commercial time from 1950 to 2010. It went from 13% of television time. It's now 36%. Did anyone notice? Right? Well, right. Because do you notice how they snuck it in? They took 50 years to freaking sneak it in. But they did. They creep it up. They creep it up. Remember when they added the logo in the corner, boop, so that every second you're watching television, they're burning a brand into your brain? And nobody liked it, but we didn't stop it. We couldn't make it not happen. Or what if I told you that, like, a major corporation was going to scan every email you received and every email you sent and build a personalized digital profile of what it thought you were interested in. And then every time you tried to read email, it would pop up distractions, custom crafted to pull your eyes away from your email and to distract you. It sounds horrifying, and it's called Gmail. (laughs) Right? And we're all like, yeah, that's cool. I like Gmail. I think that's pretty great. You know, it's all free and stuff. And right? Hmm. So advertising is insidious. Or like, man, you know, I grew up you know, in New Jersey, and you know, we'd go to Shea Stadium. Yeah, screw Shea Stadium. Now it's Citibank Stadium. You know, hooray for San Francisco. You took back Candlestick Park. It's not Monster Park anymore, so good job. At least for the next five minutes, because it's going to be Zynga Park, I'm sure, in like <laughs> 20 minutes or whatever. But enjoy Candlestick Park for the brief moment that it lasts. Okay, anyway... Um, so us as game designers, we're going to have new weird shit to deal with that we weren't used to. It, it used to be we just made a game and tried to make it awesome, and now we're going to have all these weird ethical decisions to make that, that we didn't have to make before. The print media people have had to do this. Somebody at Wired Magazine had to say, yeah, Camel cigarettes. Would our magazine convince more people to buy and smoke Camel cigarettes? Yeah, and they had to make a sales pitch to Camel. Yeah, we think so. We think here's why. Here are the people who read Wired are likely to be influenced by these ads, blah, blah, blah. And they had to do that and decide that they felt good about doing that. Uh, games people, we don't normally have to do that. <laughs> We're going to have to do it, and it's going to be way worse. Um, anyway, all right, so advert gaming is going to be a big piece of this, and some of that's going to be pretty scary. All right, so a cultural trend. Beauty. Let's talk about beauty. One of the things that's wonderful about the 21st century, everything's getting so frickin' beautiful. Oh, my gosh. Um, just everywhere you turn. I mean, you go to the grocery store, and it used to be, I remember 30 years ago, you buy a toothbrush. They came in one shape and three colors, and that was it. Now it's like a tropical fish aquarium. (laughs) Right, They're all sizes and colors and shapes and textures and oh, it's just its amazing, right? Things are beautiful. Remember when telephones were ugly and now it's like, oh, my telephone is so beautiful, right? And we hold it up as a standard. This telephone is a standard of beauty and interface. And like, a telephone? Really? But that's just how it is. And we certainly see it in the video game world. Our video games are getting more and more beautiful um, all the time. And so this, this, is, this is like a big, a big trend. And even architecture. I just was in uh, the UK. I gave a talk in this building. Um, I was at the Game Horizon conference. This is a 21st century building. It's freaking gorgeous. You can't help but like look at this building. I mean, we wouldn't have built that in the 20th century. In the 20th century, we built all this crap down here. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right? The 20th, 21st century, we built stuff like that, because we just want things that are beautiful. And so, talking about how does this beauty get to matter, well, um, oh, oh, and the, everyone should read this book. Have people read this book, The Rational Optimist? This has, like, become one of my favorite books ever. The premise of the book is, yeah, you know how everyone's always complaining about it's the frickin' end of the world, and everything's so bad, and everything's getting worse and worse? This book says, no, no, it's not. Look at all the numbers. Everything is getting better. Hunger is getting better. Crime is getting better. Pollution is getting better. Better, 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 better. Everything is getting so much better. And, and, they, and it backs it all up. And it's like, oh, man, this 21st century is going to be awesome. Uh, you know, if you look at these numbers, and even if it's not, it's going to at least be beautiful, right? It's <laughs> going to be pretty. So this is definitely a trend that we're seeing. People want more, more beauty in their lives. And a question comes with television. I'm going to take a little side note here to talk about 3D TV. Because everyone's like, yeah, 3D TV. We went from regular to HD. Now we're going to go to 3D, right? And it's going to be amazing. And everyone's going to buy it. And I'm just, just just putting out there, I, I don't know if I believe that, that that is the case. Um, and I, I, uh, I've worked with 3D a lot, right? I did all these theme park things. We made this Toy Story Mania. It was glorious 3D. And it's really great and super fun in a theme park. But in your house, every day, 3D, I will point out that stereoscopy was invented in 1849, about the same time as photography. It's not technically difficult to do if you wanted. Every picture that you ever took could be in 3D, but you don't do that because you don't freaking care. (laughs) If you thought 3D was so awesome, all your snapshots would be in 3D, but no, you don't think it's that awesome you think it's kind of a novelty reserved for certain places. So if we don't want it for our photography, I don't know if we want it with all our television. Um, And so, oh, and I love this. None of people realize, Alfred Hitchcock made a 3D movie. He made Dial M for Murder in 3D. And when he saw how it came out, he was so disappointed with his ability to use 3D to achieve meaningful dramatic effect, he wouldn't release it in 3D. Um, There were prints eventually released, but the premiere was not... uh, in 3D. And I'm like, man, if Alfred Hitchcock can't pull it off, what, what the hope do the rest of us have? Um, so I posit that uh, I think 3D TV is probably more like 5.1 stereo surround sound than it is HDTV. Uh, rich nerds will have it, and everyone else will go to their house now and then. Okay, moving on from TV. So another trend is a trend of customization. We see this all over the video game world, right? It's a big change in video games. Everybody used to be, you know, burp, there's Mario and you got Mario. Now you've you customize the heck out of your characters. People expect it, but it's not just in video games. People are customizing everything, right? Because they can. Right? And this isn't some made-up thing. This is real. You can go do this now, right? You could be eating your face right now, <laughs> right? Um, and and we, we're seeing it everywhere. We're seeing it in board games, right? There's this big line of LEGO board games that's come out. Look, I mean, I don't know if you're, if you're board game nerds out there, I mean, Reiner you know, he's the designer of this thing. He's, he's a for reals, uh game designer. And, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of these things. And it's cool. You build the board, and you build it different every time. Like, everything's becoming customizable. And this is an important trend. And one of the ways we're really going to see it being important is this eye and face tracking in the next 10, 20 years is going to be very, very influential. Um, right now, we see it when you put a camera on. The camera draws. Sometimes you use a camera. Sometimes if you've got a fancy camera, it draws squares over your kids' faces, and you're like, what the hell is this? <laughs> right and presumably it's doing something important but i don't know what it is just scares me when i see it because i'm like i don't know what you're doing camera it's kind of scary um but our ability to track and sense faces one of the ways it's going to be used is with massively multiplayer gaming to be able to track your facial expression map it right onto an avatar this is going to go a long way this is going to allow you not just to customize the look but as you speak and express you're going to actually be able to put your own expression and personality into characters in ways we haven't uh, seen before, and that's that's going to be that's going to be very important. And you know, while we're talking about facial tracking, um, faces are like really easy to tell apart. That's partly why our faces differ so much, and we have all this hardware in our heads so we can tell our, each other apart. Otherwise, we'd be really confused about who was who, right? Um, that's just part of being a human. Well, people have been starting to develop these technologies like Recognizer, right? Hold up your iPhone, and it's like, oh, I know who that is. And boop, it pops up their Twitter and all this crap right around them. And you can see the look on her face. She's like, would you put that crap down and talk to me? You know? And and they picked a name, Recognizer. That's not, like, creepy at all. Um, It has no connotations of being creepy. Anyway, um, but... You know, think of how you've put public photos of yourself online, if you've ever done that. Very soon people will be harvesting those to make a giant database of who's who. um, uh, So you can play games with that, right? Imagine a game where it's like you got to take pictures. You get points every time you find someone you've never seen before with your phone. Ding, 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 ding. Anyway, but probably, I don't think it'll be so much games. I think it'll be more practical applications. Connect that to social networking, and you get stuff like this. You know, like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's who that, oh, he knows my brother. And now you have a conversation starter with people, which is sort of cool and useful until you start thinking about all the other data that's out there and how you'd probably be able to walk down the street since we know the addresses and we can look stuff up with the car license plates. And it's like, yeah, here's who lives in that house, and here's how old they are, and here's which car belongs to what house. And it starts to be terrifying. And it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who gave up this information? We all gave it up because we didn't think anyone could see it. We thought obscurity would keep us safe. And it wouldn't. It's, it's a lot kind of like Adam and Eve and who like ate the apple. And they're like, oh, we're naked. What the hell? Right? We're all naked. I'm just telling you right now. And pretty soon we're going to eat the apple and realize, oh, uh-oh. What are we going to do about this? Um, uh, but that's not my problem to solve. Um, <laughs> while we're talking about that, why stop with just facial recognition? We now have these kind of mind sensors, you know, brain sensors that contain sense brain activity and different kinds of brain activity. And that's sort of cool. People are making games where you levitate a ping-pong ball, whatever. That's kind of cool. But think about the as- the you know, how education could change. You know, if you could suddenly, you know, teachers up there monitoring, like, what's going on? Um, you know, with, with different kids. Um, and that's kind of horrifying to think about. But on the other side, it could be very, very positive. Because imagine a school where they're like, we don't care what you're working on as long as you're thinking hard. Customize the holy hell out of your education. And as long as you're thinking hard, we're happy. Is that good or bad? or I don't know. Anyway. Um, all right, moving on. This leads me to the next topic, um, uh, something I often refer to as the curiosity gap that the internet has brought us. Um, And it's this way. It used to be, if you were curious about something, it could be freaking hard to get the information about it. You know, there's certain topics you had to go to the library. The library's closed. You get there. They don't have the right books. You had to work hard to get information. A kid today... Who wants to find out about, I don't know, you know, what does piezoelectric mean? Boom, there's the information right there. Kid wants to make a robot, boom, here's a million plans for robots. Here's how you do it. Here's how-to instructions. Here's a video of a guy who did it. And you just have an infinite amount of information. And what this means is curious people have an insane advantage because they can learn anything they want incredibly fast. People who are not curious are going to be left behind. Creating this curiosity gap between the curious and the incurious. And what this implies is that the most important thing that we can do for our children is not to give them facts or figures or techniques, but to make them curious. But the problem is, we don't know very much about curiosity at all. We know very little about it. And we certainly don't know whether it's possible to instill it. Are you born with it? Do your parents give it to you? Can it be taught? Who took a class that made them more curious? We don't know, and it may be the most important thing. I hope we figure it out because I really do believe if we can figure this out, it's going to lead to a significant revolution in education where education will go from being standardized to customized because customized education is better. Because who who wins out in the world, the guy with the standardized education or the person who got so excited about one topic that they got better at it than anyone in the world? That's the person who wins, and that's exactly what our education system does not do. Anyway, moving on. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Uh, don't, don't clap. I'm not done, baby. I, we got half a map to go here. All right. So I mentioned authenticity before, and this is a really important trend. People do want things that are more real and to connect with things um, that feel more real to them. And this is big part of the rise of social networking. So let me explain social networking. It's a fancy term that means Facebook. <laughs> All right. So that's, wait, wait, wait. I'm gonna, this is serious. This is serious. Try not to laugh. Raise your hand if you're not on Facebook. Oh, man. All right. Good for you. I give you a week, right? All right. Um, and Things on Facebook, people speak of things going viral. Remember when viral was bad? <laughs> right? Now viral's awesome, it's really good. And the reason is because when people talk about things going viral, they usually mean it in a good way. right? Things go viral like for four reasons. They're funny, uh, they're very helpful, they're unique, or they're amazing or spectacular, or they're controversial. These are all reasons that things go viral. And those are all kind of good, meaningful reasons for a thing to go viral. But with all this talk of viral, people often forget... There are bad viruses, right? Bad viruses that, like, make you sick and unhappy. And not just in the real world. No, like, you know, in, in the virtual world as well. You know, and this has been one of the things. A lot of these businesses in, the, in this universe have been all about spamming the holy hell out of you and your friends. And that works really well for a virus. It, you know, it, it kind of spreads everywhere. But if it's a virus that makes you sick and you don't like it, and you roll your eyes when that little pop-up comes... Well, guess what's going to kick in? The immune system, right? And there are two immune systems working in Facebook right now. One of them is the, the people who use Facebook. At first, it's like, oh, someone sent me a cow. Oh, I guess. That's kind of cool. But very quickly, you're like, no, no, hide, 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 hide. Hide application, hide user, hide Facebook, right? <laughs> and the second one is Facebook itself. They started to change their rules because they see people are disgusted with it, and so they start changing their rules. Nope, can't send this kind of spam anymore, and so double immune systems are kicking in for things that are the unhealthy kind of viral. But there is the good kind of viral, right? So if you're going to make things that are viral, make them the good kind of viral, not the bad kind, because the immune system is going to kick your butt. All right, so moving on. Um, another aspect of authenticity is the idea of transmedia worlds. People want their fantasy, it's weird to say this, people want their fantasy worlds to feel real, right? OK, that's strange, but it's true. And one of the aspects uh, of these transmedia worlds is that they have many, many points of entry, right? That you can get to them from, you can get to them from books, and you can get to them from TV, and from, from different kinds of games, and maybe even from a toy, or that there are many ways to get there. And it's the people who are figuring out the rules, not so much the rules for a game or a book, but like what are the rules of a world that make it seem real and solid? Because some worlds are really succeeding this way, and some kind of aren't quite as well. Um, It's interesting to compare, say, Lord of the Rings, which is a big transmedia win, and Narnia, which somehow isn't holding up there. And people are just starting to understand this. And in terms of enduring worlds um, that are going to creep into every aspect of your life, you've got to understand the transmedia, because it's a huge trend uh, in in gaming right now. And this actually relates in an interesting way to what's going on in the music industry. used to be a musician cut a deal with a record label, and it was all about making records, and that was what they did, and they might deal with someone else to get their concerts. Now they do these new things they call 360 deals, where the record label's like, no, 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 we'll handle everything for you. The music and the concert and your magazine stuff and your merchandise and your deal with the, you know, with the video game companies and your TV appearances, and it's like all one deal. And this happened because, you know, the foolish music industry relied entirely on, like, you know, they distributed things on discs and they sold them that way, and, you know, the game industry would never be so dumb as to do, oh, crap, Right? That's exactly what they're doing, and piracy is starting to sneak up on them, and it's going to be more and more of a problem. But once you have transmedia worlds where it's not just the game that matters, but having it be in many parts of your life, then they have a property that's worth more. Okay, so you got transmedia worlds, and here's another technology that ties in with authenticity, Um, speech recognition. This has been super slow. I remember when I was a kid, it's like, oh, 10 years away. You're going to have speech recognition. It's going be awesome. And 10 years later, I'm like, where is it? They're like, oh, don't worry. It's just 10 years away. And I, asked, I, was, I was talking to Kevin Kelly today, and we're talking about speech recognition. He says, well, I figured that will be here in 10 years. I'm like, yeah, sure, I guess. I don't know. But it is creeping up. You know, we have it. You can, like, make a phone call, mostly, and that kind of works. Um, uh, So uh, Chris Swain at USC makes this awesome analogy about video games and their importance in the 21st century. He says, video games right now are like silent films were um, at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, People didn't take silent films seriously. They're cute. They're kind of funny. You know, there were a bunch of nerds who thought they were awesome and amazing, this little niche community. But the community at large, ah, that's not real entertainment. There was a technological breakthrough. Boom, films could talk. And all of a sudden, everything changed. And films became the dominant medium of the 21st century. They became the literature of, of the 20th century, I mean, rather. And uh, they, they took over. They, they displaced print as, as the medium of the time. Well, Chris Wayne suggests the video games are going through something similar, but, of course, they can talk. But what they can't do is they can't listen. And that once they can listen to us, understand our words, and understand the meaning behind our words, and react meaningfully to us... Uh, when that can happen something changes we are now in a new medium can you imagine a medium where like you can't like get through you can't get through the adventure unless you like persuade the character that like you know you know no, no i'm sincere when i'm telling you this no i you know i i no i'm going to change how i do the if if you actually had to bring real emotion into the experience when you interacted with the characters that's going to that's a level of medium that we haven't had before. And it's interesting to think about games because games subsume all other media. I can put a book in a game or a movie in a game or a song in a game. I can put anything in a game. Games live outside everything. Ultimately, they will subsume every technology that they, they, they touch. And the other cool thing about speech is it lets me find new nooks and crannies. You know, I can play video games a lot. I cannot play them in the car. And I'll tell you, I have tried right? It's not a good idea. But imagine if I'm driving and, like, I don't need a screen. It's like, uh uh-oh, there's two orcs coming at you. I'm like, uh uh-oh, get my sword out and attack those orcs, right? And I can just talk, you know, with this thing. And it's like, you know, know, and I just have a conversation because I can talk to a person in the car. That's fine. If I could talk to my game system and have it be a game, that'd be freaking awesome. Anyway, every new sensor, every new technology gives you a new nook and cranny. Um, Geo-tracking. All right, let's talk about geotracking. So we see this a lot, right? You can track where you are, GPS, and people are talking about Foursquare and everything. And I need to make a little aside about this. I don't know if people have seen this movie, Frequently Asked Questions About Time Travel. It's really awesome. And I'm going to show you just a short clip of something that I think is relevant. And uh, okay, hopefully the audio is good for this here. Handshot first. Can we get that louder? And all serenity, the end. Well, that's Hollywood story. (laughs) Nerds. Hey, didn't we all agree to stop using the N word? Didn't we? I don't agree to anything. Nerd is the word they use to keep us down. You should use the term. Imagineer. Yeah. (laughs) That's the nerdiest thing I've ever heard. You are just threatened. You're threatened because you don't understand our world. Oh, what's
2: there to understand? I saw one Star Trek film, hated it, and never looked back. Really? Which one? The first one with the big gold robot and the little fat mate.
1: You mean Star Wars, don't you? Do I?
0: Aren't they the same thing?
1: No. No, they're not.
0: He knows. How would I know? I'm not a nerd. Or even an Imagineer. Better. I'm glad
2: you're happy.
1: Anyway, there is, this is an awesome movie, by the way. This is, just, this is an excellent movie. But I bring this up because it sounds really funny. You know, he calls himself, he's like, oh, I'm not a nerd. I'm an Imagineer. And it sounds like, oh, that's just self, you know, just making himself important. But there's something here, right? Because nerd is like a phrase we use to say anybody who's bookish or antisocial. What he's getting at is by saying, he's, oh, no, no, we're Imagineers. He means oh, we love to explore fantasy worlds. Right, is what he's sort of getting at. Is that's what he's about, exploring these fantasy worlds, and there are people who are really, really into to fantasy worlds. But then there's other people who cannot comprehend that at all. It seems totally alien to them. And we don't talk about this psychological dichotomy, but it's very, very real. You probably know people in your life who are kind of lean towards the imagineer side or lean towards the other side, and it needs a name. I call them the mundanes right? You know, mundane, uh, pertaining to worldly things, real things, and things that are ordinary. Um, and, that's, and there is this battle. There are, there are people that are, that are that way. And this is important because we're about to see these guys go crunch like this. Because right now, the Imagineers own fantasy gameplay, right? Real gameplay in the real world, a la sports, is owned by the mundane's no sport has any element of fantasy in it at all ever that's just how it is and um so there's a kind of battle that's going to go on once we start to geo track people and we try and take fantasy gaming elements and bring them to the real world now what's funny is (laughs) these guys actually appear to have a lot in common Uh, they don't seem that different to me, but there is something fundamental keeping them apart. Um, yeah, so people say, oh, four square, and I say, four square is okay. It's kind of a little boring. I mean, I'm either mayor of a thing or I'm not, and I, you know, I don't know. I think it's a novelty. I'm not sure it's going to last. And people say, oh, no, 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 because it's just the beginning." That's just the platform. People are going to take like Foursquare and like combine it with World of Warcraft and this fantasy thing. And I'm like, Foursquare plus World of Warcraft equals LARPing. (laughs) And it's interesting to think about why do we feel that way about LARPing? There's something fundamentally weird to us about it. And either we'll stay that way, and these two worlds will have to stay apart somehow, or maybe they'll find ways to come together, um, because fighting is awesome. Right? Fighting is like totally cool and fun. And why I, I think it were about five minutes away from somebody saying, "Hey." this Wiimote is cool in my living room, but what if I made a battery-powered one and put it in a foam sword, and it could measure how fast I'm swinging it, and it could measure when I have contact with somebody, and it will automatically, boop, transfer the hit point damage to him based on how much his armor is already absorbed. I mean, that would be sort of cool, right? That's, I think that's going to happen, and I think people are going to start doing that. And the question is, will it be a sport like fencing? Or will it be a fantasy-oriented thing, or will it be both? I have a suspicion there's a real opportunity for people to make theme parks out of this that are more immersive. It's funny to kind of think back about the movie Westworld, but that's sort of what we're talking about. You can't go and have like a week-long fantasy experience for the most part right now, but what if you could? What if there were actors and you had these digital swords and stuff that tracked your points and you really had to dig real treasure with a real shovel out of the ground and oh my gosh we're ambushed and there's horses and you could do these things that could happen and uh, I think the biggest one of all uh, will be I, I call it World of World of Warcraft World um, <laughs> or Wow, or, or WoW for short I think. Anyway so there's a, there's a prediction. Oh but, but, of course, the advertisers will catch up with all this pretty, pretty soon, and you'll go and fight the cola wars or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, all right, we're getting near the end here. So another important trend, sharing. Sharing is a huge thing in the 21st century. Everybody's sharing everything. They're sharing music, and they're you know, sharing messages. They're sharing ideas. When I heard about Wikipedia, I'm like, no, that's not going to work. That's like the worst idea ever, Right? Uh, If everyone can edit the encyclopedia, it gets better? No. It's going to be the worst encyclopedia ever. No, it's awesome. This is possibly the, the crowning achievement of humanity. Right? So... People love sharing, they love to share, and and, uh, games give them a lot of opportunities to share, and we've seen this in some games. Little Big Planet, you get to make levels and share them, and they've shared 2 million levels with each other, and it's cool and it's awesome, it's a huge trend. Um, And it it applies in in surprising places. So one of the things coming technologically is cloud gaming. And so OnLive is one of these, and the whole idea is you don't have to have a a graphics computer in your house anymore. You hit the jump button, boop, and like a signal goes up to a remote server that renders like the next frame, and then video streams it to you. And so the graphics computer is far away. And you don't have a computer to upgrade and deal with all that crap. And you're playing somehow magically at a distance. And it's, if it works, it's really, really cool. Um, now some people criticize cloud gaming, and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm not sure this is going to work. They say, OnLive is kind of like wine in a box. right? So you think about wine in a box for a second. How do wine connoisseurs feel about it? They say, no, no, I want wine in a bottle. Just like game connoisseurs will say, no, no, I must have crisp graphics. I need to have them right here. I need hyper low latency. You know, I can't have a network latency. When I hit the jump button, that's not going to work. So they want wine in a bottle. So now, what about people with less money? Do they want wine in a box? They're like, no, we want beer, right? (laughs) And just like the game people are like, no, I could play Bejeweled or Tetris. That's fine. I don't need a big graphics computer. I could play it on my watch. Do, 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 do. Do, do, do. You know, and so they don't need it. They want beer. So who the heck is wine in a box for? And cloud gaming may fall into that. But on the other hand, I'm watching what the OnLive guys are doing, and it's really smart. And you look at their menu about all the things you can do. Most of them are about sharing. So one of the things you can do in these things is, You log on, and it's like, boop, here's all your friends, and here's the games they're playing right now. Want to watch one of them, see what they're doing? You can't do that on a normal game console, but you can here because it's just sending video streams. If it sends it to one person or 10 people or 100,000 people, it doesn't care. So it adds this new realm of sharing um, that wasn't there before. So that's worth thinking about. Um, And a couple more trends. One of them, quantitative design. The nature of game design is fundamentally changing. It used to be we did things by gut feel and design principles more and more. Now that we're able to pull so much data from the players live, uh, people are just using numbers. So they're like, gee, you know, uh, how, how how many hit points should this weapon do? I don't know. Put out two weapons and, like, see which one is working better. And they just put them both out. And then they look, oh, the people, you know, people who have this many are buying the weapon more. You know, let's make it be six hit points instead of four hit points. And so they're studying the numbers and, and analyzing the, how people are playing and tuning based on that as opposed to, um, as opposed to just using gut feel. And the, the companies that are figuring this out are, are really jumping ahead. Zynga appears to is something they're really, really into. And it's uh, I love the book Good to Great talks about you know ways to run a good business and one thing it points out is businesses that become really great, they find concrete numbers to judge themselves by, and so that sort of hmm maybe I should be finding concrete numbers to judge my game by. So we're seeing that. Now, uh, for people who are uh, aficionados of Candyland, I placed this extrinsic rewards right where uh, the molasses swamp is, Um, and and for good reason. This is what everybody wants. This was a little ad I found. Turn the everyday things you do into the dreamiest perks and rewards with a Disney rewards Visa card. And that's what we want. The goal gamification of life is all the ordinary things you do, bing, 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 you're going to get rewards. And it makes it better. And isn't that nice? And wouldn't that be cool if we could measure everything and give rewards for all the right stuff? What if we could, I don't know if people know Christopher Alexander. uh, He's the greatest genius of the 20th century. Um, and uh, what if we took his 15 principles of, of architecture and life, and what if we could measure every building and every structure on that and give points for that, or if the way you rearranged your house, or, or like this guy, right? Uh, I always like what G.K. Chesterton said. You know, the problem with Christianity is no one's ever tried it. What if we had an easy way to kind of give you points and ratings about, hey, you know, you're doing good Christian ethic. That's good behavior. Would that make things better? Well, Alfie Cohn says, hell no. And anyone who's anywhere near this space should read the book, Punished by Rewards, which is all about the fact that study after study after study shows that if you bribe someone to do something, they come to hate that thing. And this goes for you know, getting a gold star in school, or getting a a performance-based incentive at work, that these things all tear you down. And this has huge implications for game design. I wish the psychologists could have told told us about this a long time ago, but I don't know what's up with the psychologists, quite frankly. They either don't understand about how to be helpful with entertainment, or they don't care. And if you don't believe me, I've been to their parties, It stands to reason if they know so damn much about the human mind, their parties would be freaking awesome. (laughs) Anyway. um, So, but there is hope here, right? I don't know if people have seen this couch to 5K. It's awesome. It's a very simple plan for like, you don't run, but you'd like to run a 5K. The couch to 5K plan is, here's what you do the first day. Here's what you do the second day. Here's what you do the third day. And it works. This simple graded system, like the first day, you're just real simple. You're gonna walk for like 20 minutes, and or not even that. Like you're gonna walk for five minutes, and they make it real, real simple. So the steps are clear and achievable, and you get progress, and it totally works because they've kind of broken it down, and and in a very interesting kind of gamified uh, way, and that totally works. And so. If you're going to make these systems where you're trying to kind of add game principles and reward principles, if you do these four things, it's, uh, you're probably going to do it right. If you make it so the thing you're doing is engaging, in other words, it's not an extrinsic reward anymore, it's an intrinsically rewarding thing to do, then that's a win for you. You need to make it effortless. If people have to like, do work and fill out a card or like, pull out their phone and hit a button or something to kind of play your game, that's a problem. But if you can make it so they do almost nothing... And like it works, that's what's so awesome at airline miles. You, one time you sign up for a thing. And then the rest of the time, yeah, all you do is buy a ticket. And bing, 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 points and rewards, and it just happens. It's effortless. Um, you've got to make them uncheatable. You've got to make them uncheatable. If you can somehow cheat your game life system, uh, then the whole thing falls apart. It's not worth anything to anybody anymore. And it can't be embarrassing. And people are so easily embarrassed. You might think, hey, look, here's a $10 off coupon at a restaurant. A lot of people are like kind of embarrassed, like, I've got a coupon at the restaurant. You know, they, they don't they're shy to, to, to do this sometimes. So you have to think about what's gonna be embarrassing. And a lot of times, public gameplay, man, that can be very embarrassing. And when all those fails, personal trainers, they freaking work. That's why rich people are so thin. <laughs> right? If you got a smart person coming to your house every day. And like, yeah, do this, don't do that. No, do this now. And they giving you exactly the right coaching and encouragement at exactly the right time, just what you need. It, re- it works. And there's social pressure. You can't just blow the guy off because he's like at your house, right? So, so there are, these things can be made to work. And that's kind of the dream. If these digital systems can become like little virtual personal trainers that like listen and give us just what we need, just when we need it, they can change our behavior. Um, and so... Our last item here, whole life tracking. This is what we're moving towards. We're moving towards a time when every single thing we do, every bite we eat, every game we play, everything we do, every dollar we spend, we're tracking it, we're tracking it, we're tracking it, and that people are going to start to turn it um, into games. And part of that's a little terrifying, and it sort of means we have some responsibility, and we need to think about it. And it means you need to look into your heart a little bit and figure out what the heck are you doing. Because the 21st century will be a war for the attention of humanity, right? And so you have to decide what side you're on. And as far as I can figure, there are four sides in this war. Um, one is the persuaders. All these guys care about is making money. That's all they want to do. They don't, they don't care if it screws up the environment or your life or your kids or whatever. They just want to get the money and get out um, so there's those guys. Then there's the fulfillers. These people want to make people, they want to fulfill people's wishes and dreams and desires and hopes. Right? That's, what, that's why they're in it. That's why they're making these things. Then you've got the artists. They don't really care if it sells, and they don't even care if it fulfills people's wishes necessarily. They want to advance their medium. They want to kind of get something new out there. They have this vision that they feel must be brought to light for its own sake. And then you've got the humanitarians who want to make things that will make people's lives better, to be able to use these new technologies and invention to, you know, help us improve physically, mentally, spiritually. Right? And so, here's these four guys, and the question is, who's going to win the war on attention in in the 21st century? And I'll remind you of the golden rule. The one with the gold makes the rules. Right? And... It's scary, because a lot of times you might think you're one of these things, and really someone else may be kind of controlling you. Um, and that's a little scary to think about, and the only way you can escape it is to wake the hell up and think about what is going on, and what are you doing, and why. Um, and it's a question, is it possible for us to, like, out-persuade the persuaders? Can we do an end run on them? Right? Because if we can, that's freaking awesome. Right? <laughs> Um, but the only way we can do it is if we wake the hell up and we think about what we're doing. Because if we can, right, if we can do that, then, you know, the apocalypse doesn't have to be a horrible thing. You know, it could be, you know, it could be kind of groovy, right? Because games are awesome, right? And if, and if we integrate all these games in our lives and, like, we think it's all great and awesome... I mean, that, that could be good, and we can get there if, you know, if we become masters of our craft, if we're skilled enough to become masters at our craft, and we're, and we're wise enough to, you know, to work together, and we're brave enough to kind of follow our hearts, then uh, we can make the 21st century be a beautiful place indeed. Thank you. I didn't go too super long. I know I want a fantastic. little fantastic. All right, thank you.
2: So, I'm um, Kevin Kelly. I'm with the Long Now Foundation, and I get to um, relay your questions, of which there are many.
1: This is cozy. I'm going to... Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> Good to see you. Okay. I'll go over
2: here. So, um, you're often asked this,
1: um, I'm sure, but you play a lot of games.
2: Do you have a favorite game that you like to play?
1: Um... Well, wow, I play a lot of games. So I have, a, I have a nine-year-old daughter, and so a lot of my game playing is sort of focused on sort of what she's into. But like when I'm all by myself, there's, um, there's, a, there's a game, it's my favorite game of all time. Um, I don't even know why I talk about it. It's uh, Blast Corps for the Nintendo 64. <laughs> Anybody? Yes. I know it's stupid, but like I, it's interesting to me because that game was not popular. It did not sell well. Most people looked at it and were like, what is this? The whole premise of it is there's a truck with a nuclear bomb, and it's going down the highway, and ooh, the no, brakes failed, and the driver jumped out, and it's like heading at a city, and the, the atomic bomb is active somehow. So they've, they've evacuated the city, and they send you all by yourself, and your job is you must get everything out of the truck's way. And so, like, you drive in in a little Dodge Dart, and you pull over, and you find a bulldozer, and, like, you start knocking down this wall so you can get to the train and get over here and get the giant robot and smash all these things. And don't touch the truck, because it's going to be a nuclear explosion. Anyway, I liked it a lot.
2: (laughs) 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 So, um, Chris Sari says, um, gambling is addictive as it triggers rewards in a very engineered, semi-random way. Will the game-copolis trigger addictive behavior? Is, is there
1: something about games and addictions that we should be w- woken up to? This is a really interesting thing to think about, because there, there have been people who have come out and said, oh, you know, this, this game addiction is a serious thing. And gambling addiction can be a very serious problem. that ruins um, people's lives, and it's weird to think about. It. It's just a game that people play until their lives are ruined right? <laughs> and, and some people say, oh, these, 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 uh, these massively multiplayer games are just as bad because if you bad game designers, you design them that way to be addictive. You make people want to keep coming back and playing them more and more. And if you would just stop doing that, the problem would go away. And that's like saying, this obesity problem, it's those bakers. Their cakes are so delicious. <laughs> if they would make them less delicious, problem would go away, right? And so that's obviously not realistic. So it is something you have to think about, like what is the impact um, that your game is going to have? It's, 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 a difficult, it's a difficult question. I don't have an easy answer for that.
2: So um, Michael M. has a question. Um, many games are short phase. They can be played in a very one sitting, maybe a few hours even sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, or at most, maybe a couple of weeks. This is the Long Now Foundation, thinking mm. long term. Yeah. So,
1: what about very long games? Mm. Well, we have some. Like, the massively multiplayer games are certainly that way. I mean, we launched Toontown in 2002. It's 2010 now. It's eight years. And the thing's still going strong and more and more subscribers all the time. It's, and, like, look at World of Warcraft and its growth and 10 million players and it's hanging in there. Is it going to go away, do you think? I don't think it's going away. Which leads to this really weird question. Like, what should you do with avatars when you die? <laughs> Maybe we'll have this situation where we leave our avatars to our children, and they keep the characters going. And can you imagine a situation where you're playing a character who's like, you have all this responsibility because you're like the sixth generation player. It's been 200 years of, like, of this character. and It's funny to laugh about, but why the hell wouldn't it happen? I don't, I don't know. I think it probably will. Do you
2: think that um, we're still playing some games that have begun in previous generations right now?
1: I uh, like games don't have a continuity. I mean, we certainly see you certainly see some of this. There's people have these sort of games and transitions that, and traditions that they sort of hand down, and you sometimes see these families that kind of have a sports mm-hmm. history. But this is a different this is a different sort of thing, a different level of sort of game continuity, um, where games last longer than human lives. Can
2: you give me a sense of the scale of the game world?
1: I've I've,
2: I've heard that in some ways people spend more money on games in total than they do on movies. I don't know if that's true. They
1: certainly do. If you look at the game market in total, it's greater than the box office take. If you add in DVD sales, that is still bigger. Um, But games are big. Uh, U.S. alone I think is about $20 right now. Um, And... It's mostly been getting bigger each year. It's also getting more difficult to measure each year because there's new kinds of games, and you've got to add the math. It starts to get weird and complicated, and, and Zynga won't tell you how much money they're making, and so it's, it's hard to know. Um, but it, it is, it's, it's it's large.
2: And what about when people are playing these, these larger, larger, I say, in terms of the scale of, of uh, production, these large... Um, open-ended games, how many hours would, um, say, the best game consume in, in somebody's life?
1: Well, there, I mean, there are people who play 40-plus hours a week for these games for years. There are some individuals that do, they, they put as the equivalent of a full-time job uh, of work into these games and play them for years and years and years. So this happens, you know, but it's kind of, those are kind of extreme cases. But for some people, it becomes their primary hobby. And do you see that continuing is that do you see sort of more professional game players in that sense um most of those guys are not professional but there are (laughs) professional game players just like there are professional athletes we see a little less in the u.s but in asia it's a big thing there are people who make you know hundred thousand two hundred thousand dollars a year being successful tournament game players i mean i think i think we are going to see a little more of that and it's funny how we so quickly like we take video games and we draw a line around it and we call it games right but, and we think, oh, isn't that weird? Someone got money playing video games? That's so strange. But then if you go over and look at sports, some dude's playing with a ball, right? And it's like, oh, yeah, he got a million dollars, sure. Yeah, he's really good at throwing that ball, and it goes right in the circle, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and we think that's totally normal, just because we're used to it. So o- over time, as games change, I, I think people will get more acclimated to it. If we can work out that whole mundane Imagineer thing, I don't, I don't know. So...
2: Um, Can you explain, this is a question from Eleanor Eaton, can you explain the success of these multiplayer online games like World of Warcraft and and others, for those who don't understand why they would consume 40 hours a week of somebody's
1: life? So part of it is their massive scale and scope. There's so much to do, it's hard to run out of things to do. There's that. There's the fact that they continue to give you goals and goals and goals and goals. And so many of us are hungry for some kind of, you know, a goal that they can achieve and it's tangible. And the goals are laid out carefully so that they are very achievable and you can reach them. And you get a continuing measured sense of I'm getting better and better and better. And that's one thing we want. But then the most important factor is social, social factors. The thing that s- makes people stick with these things, you meet other people online, you help them with things that they seem to care about. And you end up quickly with social debt, social obligations, where people need you to come on to help them do a difficult mission because they're trying to level up too. And you start to kind of get this. So partly it's a happy social thing, like, oh, it's nice to get together. And partly it's a, oh, I told them I'd come on. So all right, I'll do it. Um, so it, it's, it's many factors. They try and put as much as possible in there. And
2: is, is this gamification of, of the world that you're seeing is is um it seemed to me that that advertising played just a huge role in both your worry about it and maybe even the possibility of it happening yeah um do you have an alternative vision where advertising doesn't play as big a role in 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 life or in games can can you imagine any of this happening without advertising
1: i can i mean these things can happen without advertising but it's so natural. Like, the people who have the most, like, a toothbrush game on its own is not going to be fun enough that I'm going to get you to buy it, right? You're not going to buy it because it's like, oh, man, I cannot wait to go and, like, get, win that toothbrush game, right? You don't care enough to play it, but the toothbrush companies will care a lot. And so I think a lot of what's going to happen is there are these games that they want you to play that you might not want to play yourself, so, I, I mean, it's hard for me to see how advertising isn't advertising-oriented games are not. I mean, they, I mean we see them on the rise now. I mean, I, I get calls from advertising agencies just constantly. we are like, oh, you know, we're trying, to, we're trying to figure out how to make a game out of this and that because they want to incentivize behavior. So, advertising
2: is, is very common on TV and not so common in games right now. Um, do you think it's a good thing that kids are spending more time playing games and less time watching TV? Is, is, is playing games better for kids than TV?
1: It's a, very, it's a very difficult question. I'm always hesitant to kind of condemn anything outright. I mean, I watched a ton of TV when I was a kid. That's why. Like, well, no, <laughs> well, but and, and I think, and I'm like, man, what a waste of time that was. And I'm like, no, I used a lot of that to think about things and used it as an anchor. But now, does that mean everybody's thinking when they're watching TV? I I definitely have a gut feeling that um, you're more cognitively engaged when you're playing games of almost any kind than when you're watching most television. And so I suspect that on average, it's better. But it's really hard to say. It's hard Mm -hmm. to measure. Um, It's hard to measure these things. I mean, people's criticisms are, oh, the kid's just sitting there. I'm like... Yeah, no, he's reading a book. I mean, <laughs> I mean, oh, my kid, he's just sitting He looks at this piece of paper, and he stares and stares. And sometimes he, like, just moves his hand. What is this? You know? But no, we, we think that there's yeah, something yeah. more there. It, these, are, these are difficult questions to answer. So here's a question from um,
2: Brian Creeden. Um, what impact, if any, do you believe
1: that games can have on politics and law? Oh, that's a good question. People have already um, done some experiments uh, in this area making games that uh, are trying to influence people's behavior. And I think the closest, the best shot games have at having a meaningful influence there is one of the things games are really good at is making you understand complex systems. Um, Books are bad at teaching you complex systems because books are necessarily linear. Like if I want to teach you about the workings of I don't know, the human circulatory system or the Slant 6 engine, right? I can try and have a book go piece by piece, but if you have like a working version of it that you can play with, you're going to understand it so much faster. And so many of the decisions that uh, people in law, people in politics have to make are about complex interconnected systems. So a game we made that um, started at Carnegie Mellon University uh, it was a game called, it was called Peacemaker. And um, ended up uh, the, the students who made it spun off a company, Impact Games, was all about this. And the idea of the game was to simulate the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And the idea was to take it to the high school students in those countries because what they found was um, the high school students and many other people had very simplistic views of the conflict. Their, confl- their, their view often was, well, if the guys on the other side would just stop being jerks, this whole thing would go away. And so they made a simulation, and it's like, okay, now you can be, you know, the Palestinian president or the Israeli prime minister, you can be on the other side, try that out, see how that works for you. And they played the game, and they're like, oh, look at all these forces and factors, and oh, man, no, if I do that, my people are going to, oh, and they come away like, oh, this is way more complicated than I thought. And then eventually they start to play and say, well, I guess you can get to peace, but man, it's a hard road, and you've got to do this and this and this and this. And it was eye-opening and engaging. So I think there is potential there, but man, it's not easy making those simulations. So, so,
2: so speaking of sort of battles and
1: games, did you ever read the book Ender's Game? Oh, yeah, certainly Ender's Game. Game. So, I, well, Just a personal observation, because this audience may appreciate that. I personally believe, if you've read Ender's Game, and then you've read everything else that Orson Scott Card ever wrote... <laughs> He sold his soul for that book. <laughs> <laughs> if you go back and read that book, this book written in the early 70s, it, it, it predicts IM, uh, it predicts blogging, um, it predicts uh, people in dorms, like, you know, pranking each other's desktops. It's an insane amount of things that he just nailed so right, and it's such a beautiful story for people who haven't read it. The whole idea of it is that the... The perfect general has total empathy because they're able to use that empathy to understand the mind of their opponent. But of course, they need to destroy that opponent, which is gonna make them go insane. And that's like the whole fundamental, anyway, it's a beautiful book. I'm sorry, I uh, talked But
2: we have a little bit of a sense of, of the Ender's Game actually with the drones in Afghanistan. Right. And the gamification of war. Is that, does that fit into your scenario very much? In terms oh, my of
1: gosh. I mean, so much stuff is happening in terms of simulations. Simulations are turning the military upside down in, in some ways. Um, I, I remember being, I, I was called into some kind of think tank thing uh, a few years back because they've, like, the soldiers realized that good simulations can save their lives. They know that, man, we're going to go on this mission, we're going to do this. If I can practice with a simulation, I'm going to be better. And often they found themselves dissatisfied with the simulations they were provided. So they're like, whatever, get me some Unreal Tournament, boop, 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 boop. I'm going to make the simulations myself. And, you know, and here you've got these, you got these generals walking around. It's like, what the hell is this that you're doing? Oh, we made it ourselves. You, what? You, you just went and made it yourself and you're making decisions that we didn't come from the top down? And in the middle of a discussion, like, some people were really like, yeah, this is great. It's going to democratize the military. (laughs) Right? And the generals are all like, what? And one of the older guys in the room says, let me tell you something. In all of history, there's only been one young, wise man, and he got nailed to a tree. (laughs) Anyway, <laughs> so simulations really are starting to make a big difference. Yeah. And in ways, it's, it used to be the, mili- the military invented real-time 3D graphics so they could do this stuff. Now they buy it from game companies because game companies have more money than they do. <laughs> I don't even like to think about that.
2: <laughs> so, so you um, talked a little bit about intrinsic rewards and, and, and the punishment of rewards, um, here's a question from Michael Kim. What's your view on the economy of balancing extrinsic rewards versus intrinsic rewards when it comes to gamifying personal experiences?
1: Right. I mean, the thing to understand about extrinsic rewards is they are, they are fleeting, they are temporary, people will do them as a novelty, and they quickly get really sick of them. The experiences that last long terms are ones that people will find intrinsically rewarding. And this is the thing the advertisers don't get. And you're going to see so many experiments that are going to give you points and prizes to do, to, you know, in order to get you to do these things. And a lot of them are just going to fall flat on their face because the, 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 what they're creating is not interesting enough, engaging enough, meaningful enough um, to you. It's going to be, what will be cool, though, is it will be a huge Uh, petri dish where we're going to see thousands of experiments and the the clever and wise ones will survive and lots of them will die in the process
2: and what motivated you to get into games you mentioned the number of hours you spent watching tv was there something else did you play a lot of games as a kid
1: i played a lot of games i've always been fascinated i guess i've always been fascinated with anything that seemed magical and games are freaking magical you know you look at a game of Monopoly or something, and what do I got? I got a lump of cardboard. I got, like, some rainbow fake money. I got these little metal things. And then, like, suddenly we're having a fight. Right? <laughs> right? And I'm like, I got the dice, and I'm sweating. I'm like, I hope I don't land on boardwalk. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Right? And all these emotions came out of this, this, these little things and this little set of rules. And that always seemed, like, incredibly... Magical to me, so that's 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 partly you know what's what's always fascinated me
2: about games. And
1: there will be more magic
2: in games with technology. Oh,
1: sure, and technology lets you have things that are just. I mean, that's one of the great things. You know, we made the uh, making making thing. We put these things in the theme parks and such, and people come and they're like, "I what is that possible? I didn't know you could do that." And this, and that's that's one thing that I love to hear. I didn't I didn't know this was possible, like in that Toy Story Mania for, um, um, for, for Disney World, we made the opening scene, there's a thing that happens in the opening scene, if it doesn't happen anywhere else, where the characters invite you to throw pies at them, and you have this pie launcher, and you're shooting pies, and the characters look like they're pre-rendered, I mean, they're incredibly high quality, and like, and they react to what you do, they're like, hey, come on, whoa, and like, if you aim at their face, they like, whoa, they block with it, and there's a moment where people are like, "Wait, wait, what? That animated character is reacting to what I do." And there's that magic moment where I can't, I can't believe this is happening. Is as I, I like, I like that moment.
2: I really appreciate the magical evening you've given us, and I oh. want to thank you for your
1: wonderful time here. All right. Well, thank you very much.